0: Welcome to Learning Otherwise, I'm your host Udi Mandel. Learning Otherwise makes Audible a silent learning revolution happening all around the world, offering stories and tools of hope, imagination and possibility in a time of multiple crises. What might learning look like if it were at the service of a diverse ecologies, cultures, economies, spiritualities And life in our planetary home. Learning otherwise is a journey to explore this question. Through conversations with leading practitioners and thinkers reimagining learning and education, this series will make audible the silent revolution happening all around the world in higher education and beyond. These conversations take us to experiments in learning that are emerging from indigenous communities, social and ecological movements, and other sites of innovation, including universities, colleges, and schools. This series is created through the EcoVersities Alliance, a translocal community of over 100 transformative learning spaces from around the world, who have been meeting and collaborating since 2015. The EcoVersities Alliance is a community of learning practitioners committed to reimagining higher education to cultivate human and ecological flourishing in response to the critical challenges of our times. In this episode, I am joined by Karim Yassin Goesinger, founding director of the Cairo Institute of Liberal Arts and Sciences, where he has taught courses in the humanities and social sciences. Karim has lectured in sociology at the American University in Cairo, introducing students to the sociology of space and gender. As an anarchist educator and scholar activist based between Cairo, Egypt and elsewhere, He has combined his academic background in philosophy and urbanism with body-based practices, including Qigong and tea drinking. Karim uses art, social cartography, and critical pedagogies in an effort to denaturalize colonial frames of reference that make up the social, with the aim of enabling ways of doing, thinking, and being that are unimaginable within the modern colonial imaginary. He has interwoven textual and non-textual sources of history, culture, and belief, including film, artifacts, music, architecture, and food, into the courses and workshops he has offered. Karim speaks and hosts conversations on the changing nature of higher education at universities, cafes, and other emergent spaces. Karim Yassin is a member of the Ballatin Group and the Ecoversities Alliance. In this conversation, Karim describes the emergence of the Cairo Institute of Liberal Arts in a ferment of post-revolution Egypt. He explains how the institute is rooted in and in conversation with the local urban, cosmopolitan context of historic Cairo. Karim also narrates the broader crisis facing academia in Egypt, the region and globally, and speaks to the relevance of silas and liberal arts education to the present historical moment. Along the way, we also get to talk about the transition from the ivory tower to the pigeon tower and the pedagogy of tea. I am especially grateful to have Karim on this conversation because of his pioneering work in developing the Cairo Institute of Liberal Arts and Sciences, as well as his global perspectives on the crisis and new possibilities in higher education. So Karim, very excited to have you have you on the podcast and have this conversation with you and share tea with you. Uh, we're both drinking tea right now. Um, Likewise. And uh, so we'll talk more about tea uh, as we go into the conversation too, but maybe just as a way of beginning, could you just share a little bit about the, the work that you do?
1: Uh, really good question. I was asked that question over dinner last night and I just always struggle answering that question because I'm involved in, in several projects that all relate in one way or another to rethinking um, like traditional approaches to higher education especially within sort of modern colonial university context. and trying to think beyond the walls of the university and yet continue to do like rigorous work and uh, but also so I find myself more recently collaborating a lot with artists who, who still want to be heard in academic circles as well as artists or scholars, sorry, as well as academics or scholars who were who are reaching out to artists. Like I think most recently these have been it's like at the intersection of art and, and academia somehow also think of my work as like um, scholarly activism or activist scholarship. So also that intersection of like doing um, activism and pursuing scholarship. And, and, and I think like one thing that I would add perhaps to the scholarship piece is I don't like to pursue scholarship um, on my own. Uh, I mean, there's definitely an individual study piece to it where I have to just like uh, put my head down and, and, and read or read up and and, and uh, position myself within a, an, a body of, of literature, or, uh, of, or, or you know like find my 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 methodological approach and, and revise my theoretical framing of things, etc. But I think what uh, for me like scholarship or scholarly pursuits is is very much a um, an act of collabor- collaboration. Um, so for me, I like to, to both be part of and promote also this idea of scholarly collectives that we've been talking about also over the month. Most recently, I had the chance to to, to take some time off to, to look into um, how people are, 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 are thinking about changes in higher education and how the, the higher education landscape is, is, uh, is reshaping um and that w- that was i was in japan for that i think perhaps just to give a bit of context but i think japan is in a, in a finding itself um, in a position where it's, it's a bit at um, seeing a need to to both preserve the humanities and social sciences or the liberal arts more generally speaking also in in a in a in, you know in a critical moment where it's trying to open it, itself up to the world and try to in conversation with other higher educational initiatives and ideas and practices. So I was asked to kind of share a little bit about what's going on uh, in the rest of the world in terms of uh, reinventing higher education. And i'm followed by that, and that's probably the last piece I'll add on, on this introductory remark, um, was an invitation to South Africa. So it's particularly interesting for me, because so I was kind of summoned as someone coming from North Africa to share a little bit about our perspective, a North African perspective on on decoloniality and and decolonial higher education. And no, I think the invitation was more um, precisely decolonial creative practices or pedagogies, I think. So So the notion of decolonial pedagogies was something that I was asked to to engage a group of graduate students uh, in. Uh, I can share a little bit about what exactly we did in the workshop, but these are just a little bit, some of the the notions that come up in the work and in, in the invitations and the inquiries and some of my writings. And definitely when I'm asked to speak is I reflect on these things.
0: Mm, that's great. Well, great intro. Uh, maybe with that as a segue, then before we talk more specifically about the collective of scholars and students that you founded in, in Cairo, which is Silas, maybe we should or Silas, Maybe we should talk a little bit uh, what, given your perspective and how you're circulating through these different networks and countries and this overview that you have of the contemporary higher education world and the challenges that it faces and this question of decolonial pedagogies and approaches within higher education. Do you want to just give a little bit of a sense of what's your feel of this field right now in terms of the the key crises and challenges in higher education and some of the innovations that are emerging that you're seeing from your, from your global view, if you like. I mean,
1: everyone seems to, to begin to see anyway that there what is referred to as a neoliberal assault on higher education or on university. So this, this idea of like neoliberalization or perhaps just corporatization of higher education where to me that has meant also like you know having done a gig at the american university in cairo which is i think it's like a neoliberal bastion at this point after it decided to move out of downtown while it was still kind of embedded within you know community and the larger happenings of you know everyday life and, and Cairo decided to move out into the desert even beyond so-called new cairo so it's like i got to you know, I did a, like, a two-year gig teaching, lecturing in sociology out there, so, like, that was, that's probably, like, the the first-hand experience I had of a neoliberal assault on, on, on higher education, and I think what it has meant to me is, um, on the one hand, like, seeing a, um, an echelon of, of management of, or, like, a like a, a top management becoming concentrating power, and um, re- and and just a very sort of hier- uh, uh, hierarchical structure within within management. Their salaries go up while at the same time having you know the adjunctification of faculty taking place like you know hand in hand. And 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 I think so. Not only was the I felt that the burden was carried by more increasingly like adjunct faculty, which I was part of, but also students, student um, uh, fees, tuition fees going up. So there's this, 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 this um, reshifting and, and moving of, of burden towards, you know, two of the pillars uh, and, and one, one pillar that just kind of like kept going up. So anyway, so that, that kind of like tripartite structure of like admin faculty and student body kind of being re, reshaped and reinvented. That, that's, that's what I've seen firsthand and what I've heard other people bemoan, like lament basically all over the world. And I think that's, that's in a nutshell what corporatization or neoliberalization of higher education has meant on the one hand. And then I think on the other hand, um, another like critical piece uh, of like contemporary higher education is that a lot of fields of study and or majors or programs that came up um, over the past three decades, let's say, uh, in, you know, like particular area studies or, or feminist studies or gender studies and just some, you know, like pieces of critical theory to kind of like sum it up um that were were given a chance to stand on their lo- own and you know were given a budget to to conduct research and to to offer you know thought programs that have been like mm, defunded again and and that you know had a very short lifespan basically i'm thinking like you know like in the in the north american context there's like African-American studies, I think, and like indigenous studies and, um, you know, gender and race studies, all these very critical pieces of critical theory are disappearing again. And, and the other last piece I would say, I think, in terms of like contemporary higher education is over the past five, maybe even 10 years, um, and especially coming, having had the chance to, to engage with students in South Africa uh, half a year ago, just the student uprisings and, uh, 2015, 2016 saw the, the students, uh, the fees must fall after, you know, roads must fall and the fees must fall and it turned into an everything must fall, um, hashtag movement, uh, across university campuses, but especially, uh, historically white apartheid kind of bastions, uh, like Stellenbosch and Rhodes University, UCT in Cape Town, WITS, and joeberg and and elsewhere but these are the places i had the chance to visit but so student movement there a student uprising there students organizing um as well as in, in chile which then kind of spilled over into a larger public um but there's a couple, there's a number of, of student movements. i think that the hong kong um movements that are ongoing were initially uh, also, uh, a student movement. So I, I'm, I also had a chance a few years uh, ago to visit CU Chinese University Hong Kong, and and speak with uh, some some student organizers there about. I'm not sure. I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was called the Rainbow Movement in Hong Kong. But so, anyways, so across um, across the globe, you have you know students forming, uh, demanding, um, standing up for what they consider their rights. So I guess these would be the three main things, you know, the restructuring of operations, the um, the preserving of fields of inquiry, as well as, you know, contesting um, that. Because I guess perhaps one thing to add also um, in terms of like curricular design is in what we're seeing also at the AUC, for instance, the American University in Cairo, is that kind of like moving away from the humanities uh, and social sciences towards more like business oriented tech computer science engineering kind of programs, and I guess that's also something that you must have experienced yeah, at the different um, universities you have been at I would say these are the three kind of like main blocks that I'm looking at right now anyway
0: hmm. well that, that's really interesting and do these patterns regionally too. Do you see them manifest itself? You mentioned the American University in Cairo. More broadly speaking, in, in that region of North Africa and so on. Do you do you have a sense that this neoliberalization of the university and the and the rolling back on the one hand of these more critical disciplines, departments, and, and collectives within universities is happening too, as well as the kind of student mobilization? You you kind of painted a, a picture of this ferment of uh, activists student mobilization across the region in, in Egypt in Tunisia and the revolution of, of 2011 and then um, in, in reading some of the work that you you referred to and others too in in how that that context then a few years later sees the emergence of, of Silas do you want to speak about that that kind of relationship and then just introduce us to what what Silas is
1: yeah um definitely Silas is was you know some people have referred to as a, as a brainchild of the revolution um, so Silas is Cairo Institute of Liberal Arts and Sciences, which is the name I've you know decided to give to a space um, that focuses on on liberal arts as the subjects or um, a tradition of of learning that favors like a broad exposure to um across disciplines and that brings different voices from below from above from wide you know far away close by into conversation and tries to in this i, I you know i usually speak of the CELAS as a uh, offers or invites students to engage uh, with a with the liberal arts, or like no, with a program and the spirit of the liberal arts. So it's really about bringing that spirit of liberal arts education to a region where previously it was highly privatized, in the sense that the American university kind of claimed ownership of, of liberal arts education and was championing that. But as I said, like behind really uh, high walls, it was so highly privatized, a very a very exclusive commodity uh, that they charged uh, you know great sums for. So the, the 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 idea was really to to enable access, and uh, initially to democratize and and just popularize and you know um, circulate that notion, have people look it up. It's like oh, liberal arts. Hmm, I wonder what the translation in Arabic would be, and so people kind of offered different translations. It's like oh, well that kind of links up with you know like early Islamic kind of philosophy of education others uh, were trying to make different linkages and but anyway so like I began to resonate um, among people and um, I felt it was needed because um, it was already happening but kind of people were perhaps not finding or, or they were finding and giving names to the ways they were organizing but there's nothing that kind of like I, I used I think I, well, I sometimes still refer to it as an umbrella term, but even like an umbrella to kind of sit under as if you're like sitting by the beach. And I feel like liberal arts is like an umbrella. You can kind of group under people who are questioning, who are wondering, you know, what this revolutionary moment could mean to them as like young adults moving forward, uh, kind of wanting to look back at the history of revolutionary moments across the globe, see how people dealt. um, and yeah, I, so, so I guess one very concrete thing that was happening, not you know, not just after 20, January 25th, which we're actually approaching in three days, you know, uh, So the January 25th revolution is the 2011 uprising. Um, so people even beforehand were organizing uh, in, into reading groups or study circles uh, in cafes or people's homes. So the, the idea was to, to kind of build on, on these study circles and, and, and reading groups and try to, to propose something that would be a little longer lasting, a little uh, um, more coherent also in that uh, I thought, okay, maybe a bridge program. And so the notion of bridge program was also new to me. A friend said, well, why don't you call it a bridge program? Kind of gives the sense that, Walk over the bridge, and then you'll eventually get somewhere. I didn't, you know, I didn't um, uh, want to determine or be too prescriptive as to where the bridge would take you. Hopefully, hopefully to a, a more enriched and uh, uh, life. <laughs> but uh, so, so yeah. I mean, so Silas was a, then came about as as a as a bridge program, a year-long bridge program in the spirit of liberal arts education, continuing do what people were already doing on their own terms, kind of giving it a bit of a, of a face lift, let's say, by calling it Cairo Institute, by giving it an English kind of like serious sounding name, even though it was never degree granting or, or otherwise accredited, but just even the name had a, like a, a fancy ring to it. And it also kind of a, very strategically chose an English name uh, initially because there's the what is called in Arabic like a, like a complex of foreign foreigners so that you're always trying to sort of like, you know, um, speak in English and, uh, and, and live up and like imitate a foreign lifestyle in that sense. So giving it that name was this kind of strategic choice. Well, with, interestingly enough, like it, nobody really cared much about it. They, they used the abbreviation of Silas. And so now, now most people know it as Silas not even knowing what it stands for. So that, that, that was kind of an interesting kind of uh, consequence.
0: From that, maybe just explain why, why liberal arts, why you choose to anchor it within the, the tradition and, and pedagogy or, or core curriculum, if you like, of, of the liberal arts and what, and how does that translate into what you, you developed there?
1: Yeah, definitely inspired by my personal experience. Um, attending a young liberal arts college in the Netherlands, um, which was five years old at the time when I joined. So it was still in kind of an experimental phase, which made it interesting to be a student who could also, you know, um, be part of revising things and um, um, making suggestions. So we were very sort of like active unheard student experience and And having the freedom of, uh, of designing your own curriculum in conversation with an academic advisor um so that idea of exploring a wider field I was exploring humanities and social sciences um, and having very small class sizes sitting in 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 a circle um the floor was 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 uh, made of carpet <laughs> so and like drinking tea and so there's definitely. I wouldn 't say casual in the sense that it compromised rigor. The visit was a very rigorous and intellectually demanding program, but there was definitely something a little bit more uh, homey and familiar, and there was colors. I remember the walls were orange and green at the college I was at in, in the south of the Netherlands university college Maastricht. Um, so it felt really like a, a community building exercise, so that to me was also a, a an important piece of my my liberal arts uh, education Anyway, so there was there was definitely um the ambition of of replicating parts of that i had a chance to spend um, my study abroad uh, in brazil in, in at the catholic university in, in rio it was another really <laughs> i mean at times uh it was an incredible experience of having professors come back from surfing uh, in their surf shorts and and flip flops uh and yet you know being serious scholars and and um, getting us to think about <laughs> so so there was also that experience to me which made it less cerebral i mean uh, and um more inviting ultimately uh, and then ultimately, I went to grad school to really i mean you know prestigious but also. Um, pretentious um, so-called Grande École which turned out afterwards it was not but like some of you know these like Ivy League schools of France where people would dress up in, in suits and like leather shoes and, and whatnot and it was a very stiff and, uh, and rigid um, graduate school experience which I definitely wanted to reflect on and also correct some of the things that I figured were, were undesirable so there, so so all these my my personal trajectory informed um my my own project of, of creating a space um and i think like perhaps to answer the question on like why the liberal arts um that i can give you a really long answer i guess if uh but to keep it a bit short um i think it's a really good preparation forever, whatever you want to do, uh, be it, you know, uh, pursue science or, 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 an artistic practice or uh, go travel or just be a good um, partner <laughs> or a good parent. I think it's a really, um, it, it's a, it's a really good preparation for life in that it gets you to question some of the fundamental things and, and workings of, uh, of, of, of ideologies, of, um, I th- you know, like a big piece of it is to, to to inquire into the isms. So, you know, big notions that end on ism, kind of like take them apart, unpack them, and try to repopulate them together with others and give meanings to them, see how it relates to your own life. So I think these are really important. I think look, everybody um, should pursue the liberal arts um, for... You know, some time for you know um, as a preparation for for anything to come. Um, so so I really like that it's on the one hand uh, a very broad exposure, but it's not vague or anything because you're still you're still um, you know in, invited and asked to to think deep and 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 read closely uh, and to to listen carefully what others have to say on. the the state of democracy, (laughs) for instance.
0: you. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could give us a sense of some of the uh, some of the offerings, some of the courses and maybe method method or methodologies or, or pedagogies that are part of this in relation to the liberal arts. and also speaking to you have this nice phrase in one of the pieces that you wrote about liberal arts from below, and what does that mean in this context of of Egypt and Cairo yeah. as well? um let let me start with the the
1: approach bit. And um, as I just mentioned, my, in my, my own liberal arts experience was one of sitting in a circle with a carpet floor, uh, small group of people. Um, you know, the, it wasn't really distinguishable who, who's, the, who's the mentor or the tutor or the professor necessarily. Um, and so that was nice. It was a very nice equalizing kind of uh, dynamic. And, um, I think in, what what inspired me in terms of metho- methodology or just approach to learning in in, in the Egyptian context was the um, the street cafes that I also wrote about in one of the pieces, and just um, how uh, how inviting and 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 very much transformative they they've been not only in the aftermath of the revolution but I think growing up uh, it would be the place to meet it's um, You know, it's out in the open. Um, You just pull up a plastic chair and kind of join a group of people. Some of who would like smoke a shisha. uh, Others would drink tea. And the conversation would just flow very freely uh, and continuously for hours. Uh, It was also very conducive to cracking jokes and um, sometimes gossiping and commenting and what was going on around us. There's a very like performative uh, feel to it. Uh sometimes you know in that sometimes people would step on step up on stage and kind of you know say what they had to say or act out what they had to you know uh, what they felt they needed to embody so so that this i know like as a i mean like perhaps also a cultural piece is that like to me egypt and- Egyptian culture is very theatrical and and performative, and so this is something that is just, you know immediately visible when you visit so it's, it's not it's not something you have to like carefully even observe I was Like this is great this is happening it's a very it's a very lively form of discussion and exchange and i think like having you know uh, an austrian father and like having been schooled uh, in, in a prussian school system um there, there was always this <laughs> and almost i guess an obsession to say okay there's just so much flying around here how do we ground this How do we translate this now into practice or action? So there's the second piece that came in where I was like, okay, this is all beautiful and and very inspiring and wondrous. But how do we now capture some of this to kind of build on or revisit some of these connections that were made or some of, you know, the bouncing off. And uh, yeah. And so from there kind of grew this, this approach that I've been, ended up very simply calling discussion-based learning, which would divide sort of the in-class time into pre-discussions, which is basically just do what, you're, you, what you do when you come together at a street cafe, and then allow us as the facilitators, as the fellows, we, you know, i call them, i call us, um, engage with some reading, some material, some visual material, maybe check out this, this exhibition Uh, listen to this lecture online, Um, maybe do this exercise and reflect on it, but just, you know, whatever assignment. Uh, And then come back next week for a post discussion in which we revisit everything that came up the week before in a more intuitive and kind of like more casual way. Um, And I think that was very inviting to people. Like, oh, this is, you know, this feels like what we're doing already. And then, you know, they're adding a little piece. To me, I was always, always very critical. It's like I didn't want to just kind of like, especially the way I look, you know. Like people, when I open my mouth, they're like, you know, they're taken aback. It's like, hey, wait, you, you're Egyptian. <laughs> and like, yes, uh, sorry, you know, like genetically, I went too far in that direction. But like, the complexion, don't, don't be fooled, you know. Like, <laughs> we share a sense of humor and a lightness of being, and uh, look at the curly hair. And, and like, so I just like reassure them that we're 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 in the same boat because of this foreigners complex. So I didn't want to kind of be perceived and, and still to this day, I'm often perceived as, uh, the, you know, the, the white savior. And it's like, ah, oh, come on, man. You know like, and just, I eat better with my hands than most people out here. <laughs> I
0: so, yeah, I mean, that that's, gives a really clear sense of the kind of approach and, and methodology. And I love the way you described the, I guess, the the, the learning of the local practices and, and culturally embedded ways of learning anyway, which are very, yeah. you know, very open, very free and inviting and uh, and fun, which is which is key part of it too, uh, and adapting that to a context of a, of a liberal arts and science context. I think that's that's wonderfully described. The other part of the question was, and I guess that's part of the question of what that means from below, liberal arts from below, in terms of the methods. Maybe the other part of the question is more about... Uh, content or courses or, yeah. or offerings and so what, what kind of what does curriculum look like a little bit um, Totally. and how does that then go relate back to the place of being in Egypt in Cairo and some of the mm. the the kind of research or translation or the other work that you do through through Silas?
1: Totally. The, um, the, there's a second piece to the, to the liberal eyes from below or you know the the attempt to con- to contextualize liberal arts education to situate it um make it place based and so on which is the very deliberate choice as uh, someone trained as an urbanist uh, especially looking at c- cities of the so-called global south urbanization um as it plays out um um so i was I was very attuned to uh, just the prevalence of informal areas, um, the inequalities of a place like Cairo, similar to Rio, which you're familiar with, um, and traveling between these worlds always as you know, previously working in development practice um with different you know bilateral development agencies and through different the bilateral agreements of. Upgrading informal areas or trying to make waste management more efficient or try to formalize property and, and so on. So that, that's, that's the background I was coming from. So I was very tuned into the urban fabric um, or the urban morphology, like more, more largely speaking, and making a deliberate choice to, to situate the, the space somewhere at um you know some people would say like at the interstices uh interstices or a kind of at the, um at the edge basically um, between what some people would consider a, like a popular neighborhood uh or like working class neighborhoods where uh you know tenure wasn't wasn't you know like Formally defined, or, or respected, or, or violated, or else, and there was there's a risk of eviction, of, of forced removal, of demolition, etc. Uh, and so all these notions kind of sprang up. And on the other hand, it was a heritage site um, from the 14th, 15th century, so from Fatimid, like medieval Cairo. So like I, I played on that duality where where some people would be. Um, kind of drawn to the. I think everyone would be drawn to to this place uh, from Greater Cairo, but also from the provinces uh, around across Egypt um, to kind of go and see the marvels of you know the of of Mamluk or like Fatimid Cairo, which is a very prosperous and very uh, generative um, period in in Islamic history uh, in terms of. Scholarship, poetry, uh, architecture, especially so the built environment from from seven hundred years ago is is um, partly ruinous, partly in ruins, uh, partly intact, partly under conservation. But th- th- there's there's a lot of stakes at play. You know, currently people, investors are coming in to buy it up and uh, and restore it to into you know like spas or bathhouses or or just as, as, you know, a touristic destination. But so what I'm trying to get at, so, sorry to make it a bit longer than it perhaps needs to be, but it's, it's just for me, when I think about a pedagogical uh, intervention or, or proposition, I always think about spatially, spatial embeddedness or, or, or place, implaciveness. I think you, you, you mentioned that word before. But what I'm trying to get at, I, I think it was a very strategic position for both people who find the informal dynamics and logics and uh, more intriguing, and especially in age group, like, like late, or like young adults who, 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 uh, who rely on like informal transport to get to their destinations. There's something very playful and, mm, and uh, adventurous to, to informality. Obviously not romanticizing it because there's a lot of precarity and um, difficulties and, and challenges in everyday life. But so, like playing on that duality, I like positioned uh, or looked for a space that could host Silas in um in a historical part of of town uh, at the edge to uh, an otherwise like informal area that was under service that was at risk of, of demolition of upgrading of removal et cetera so just having these dynamics right you know outside of the classroom um and allowed for the classroom not to be an isolated space but rather to almost bleed into its surrounding and be in conversation with its surrounding. So the last, you know, the, the second piece would be bringing liberal arts into education into conversation with its surrounding by, by the choice that you position it in. Uh, and so that, that insight kind of came through my training in, in urbanism and, and reading sort of cities, especially mega cities of the global south. Okay, in terms of content, the content, on the one hand, um, obviously there had to be a core curriculum piece, just because that is kind of um, the substantive part of, of a liberal arts education. But always kind of bearing in mind that we're not offering a liberal arts education in upstate New York, but obviously uh, in a in a historical part of of Cairo. So the core curriculum was a piece in where there was like introductory courses to the humanities, social sciences. Um, I think art and culture and, um, and life sciences. So, initially, there was this division into like four fields of inquiry, and people would then be introduced, you know, cross disciplinarily uh, and with time, sort of transdisciplinarily into what we considered um, just um, like seminal texts um, to, to learn how to read ultimately. So, didn't obviously, we were very mindful to in in our attempt to challenge eurocentrism and and try to already introduce people to the politics of and the geopolitics of knowledge production from from the outset without like you know um falling into a trap of indigenizing or romanticizing and essentializing the local practices and just kind of like you know focusing on arab scholarship or you know the, the golden age of uh of Uh, of, of, you know, uh, Arab, Arab civilization, but, but rather bring it into conversation with, with other civilizations. So, so like, you know, we introduced people to a global history approach um, to, to attempts within anthropology to, to study, you know, um, from below or at the margins. And uh, so some, some of the, the critical elements of just, broadening the scope and, and, and beginning to, to develop an awareness that, that knowledge is something that um, is, is created, there's politics that feeds into this creation, um, and, um, and that it has implications for, for, for our daily lives. I think that the core curriculum tried to do that, tried to challenge Eurocentrism without obsessing uh, over um, the local context. So trying to, to strike a balance there somehow. And through revision, like every year, the cohort of 24 students kind of would look back at the first three months, like, okay, what could be done better and differently, et cetera. And then the second piece of the program, um, the, the thematic coursework and the themes that would be offered or, or um, uh, looked at dependent very much on, on the concerns and the interests and the questions of the student body. So that would always change. So the second piece of the program relied on, on harvesting the matters of concern that the people uh, coming through the space were sitting in, and that came about in conversation with one another, through the coursework, through traveling back and forth to that space. Uh, some people became increasingly aware of their body, uh, of their gender identity, um, of their race etc. So then the courses would kind of shift looking at these different things that people would experience firsthand throughout both obviously engaging with the material presented throughout the first term uh, as well as the experience of becoming a member of a scholarly collective or
0: community. I mean that that leads on to the question then if you can just speak a little bit to the sense of who are are the students who come through the institute and uh, a little bit uh, if you give a sense of what you've sensed, the kind of impact, transformation, uh, what, what are they getting from this? And, and maybe some of the things they might go on to do as a result as well.
1: Um. So initially, um, as the founder of the space, I was particularly interested in bringing people together who were previously not in conversation, as I said earlier in the conversation. Uh, and so the, to me, that meant trying to... Well, so, so there's like one major polarization after the, the, the 2011 revolution, which was that people kind of like sided with the camp of liberals and then others went uh, and, and sided with the camp of conservatives of Muslim brothers. You had a very stark polarization. These people would not frequent the same spaces, would not be in conversation with each other. They'd rather just accuse one another. Um, so that was a very kind of like blatant uh bridge uh divide to bridge um but then obviously the otherwise uh major like segregation was both kind of spatial in that people coming from the middle class and somewhat like planned and somewhat regulated neighborhoods and the others who came from the unplanned informal areas who would not frequent the same places also and then there's another sort of like gender segregation that is pretty huge so so and then and another thing that was a critical piece for me is that uh, Egypt has been increasingly in the last ten years been know hosting countries for um refugee refugees uh, from the Horn of Africa, especially Darfur also uh but so like east africa greater east africa and completely rendered invisible uh tolerated and um looked after you know uh, by the unhcr but otherwise by by society um looked down upon um discriminated against or otherwise exploited through domestic labor so i growing up uh went to friends households who had uh domestic workers from typically ethiopia or sudan and um but again so rendered completely invisible. So I, so I was trying to sort of bring different people into a student body who would otherwise not meet. So I went, actively went out into the um, some of the neighborhoods where that are known to host um, um, refugees from, from from East Africa. I went into informal areas and tried to you know uh, pique the interest uh, in Arabic. You know. They don't worry about, you know, your level of English, just come in and we'll, we'll figure out a way to, to communicate to each other. And then I also went out to to the American University and to some of the private international schools and so on and tried to kind of uh, get people excited there. So for me, initially, my, the, I went out of the way for the first two years or so to, to bring people from different um, pockets and echelons of society. So the student body was meant to be socially inclusive. Uh, they, you know, I, I, the way I worded it was that you know Silas welcomes or invites people from all walks of life. Um, so there, there was that attempt. Then and then with time and you know quite organically, we ended up, you know, becoming visible to people not just in Cairo but increasingly in Alexandria, uh, increasingly in other uh, governorates, Port Said, Ismailia, and then all, even Upper Egypt which is quite a you know, four-hour train ride, at least, <laughs> to reach. And people would come and uh, apply. So it would, it, you know, it would uh, attract people from, from far away, was, which, which was really beautiful. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, so I guess the people who, who, who come for the, the, the bridge program, who stay on for the 10 months, uh, who is sort of the, the main target group, Uh, audience for for Silas, and otherwise you can choose to come in for a thematic course during the second term and just uh, audit, but actively participate in in those. I'm going to be talking about sort of the the cohort of of 24 students from different walks of life that I just sketched. Um, I would say like one third of them becomes academically very curious and intellectually wants, you know, wants to continue to pursue... Um, academia. So I, I guess uh, every year I would write maybe a handful of like, letters of recommendation for grad school and these students would typically be accepted to study somewhere in Europe or North America. Uh, and now I had my first student um, be admitted to University of Cape Town. So like, I'm, I'm encouraged, I have been encouraging people to kind of look beyond North America and Europe. And see what's going on in India, in South Africa, even in Ghana and, and etc. And so one third like goes on uh, academically. Uh, I guess one third like, becomes curious about the world and, and, and tries to find a way to travel. So some you know do, do backpacking, others do like uh, volunteering uh, abroad and, and so on, and trying to kind of rethink uh, what they want to do. And then the other third, they, they set something up of their own or join one of the other um collectives or more like autonomous spaces um from like independent media outlet or something called contemporary image collective which is more focused on visual art um or join some sort of a co-working space uh, or otherwise a cultural space uh, that does exhibitions uh, and so on So, like roughly the, i guess that would be the impact that people you know have summoned the courage to 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 step out i mean i guess like one thing to remember also about the egyptian context is that most people will have studied at public universities so very few will have, you know will afford to study at a private university obviously the american university being the, the most expensive one among them there's a german university a british university a canadian university the whole colonial <laughs> group has uh, assembled. Anyways, so most people will have come from a public university having studied engineering or medicine um, or um, a lousy version of like political science, economics, uh, literature. Uh, pharmacy is huge. Dentistry. So these are kind of like the main um, professional, professions that they're trained for but they're, you know, underpaid in where they to pursue it. So people come to see less. I mean, many, not everyone, but like most people say I'm here to shift careers, which is, I guess, you know, like liberal arts education is very much about like figuring out what it is you want, uh, what is needed also, where you can contribute uh, most effectively um, and what, it, what you're passionate about. So I think that's,
0: probably in a nutshell. Great. Well, that's fantastic. Now, that's really exciting. Good, Really excited to have a sense of these three avenues that the students go into. I think that must be really mm. rewarding for you to, to experience too. I mean, one one thing I was curious too about, given that you started this, uh, it's been seven years now, right? That's been seven years. That's a big anniversary. So what? I'm wondering... Through this experience, what have been some key learnings and insights for you? That's one question. And the other is, what's what's the relevance of this beyond Egypt, beyond Cairo, beyond Egypt, for both the the things that you are learning, or maybe the some of the model that you are creating, co-creating uh, yourself through this.
1: Ah. Uh... I guess let me start uh, on a personal level as an educator, or as I put it in the bio, just to provoke a little bit, an anarchist educator. Just being able to call myself that, um, and also explore a little bit what that means um, over the years with just different approaches to to teaching and uh, and just my my own development. On you know, as I reflected on in the, on, in the talk on the task of the liberal educator. Like, what is the task of the library? Just sort of revising that. I think that's definitely, that revision is one of the major, like, learnings. And now when I come to host workshops or, or give seminars or just teach a class, just how do I go about this um, Just to make it as, as, uh, as relevant, thought-provoking, and hopefully life-changing <laughs> for everyone involved? Um, that, that's one thing. The other piece is, as the founder of c to learn how to support some of the alumni who have come through, and said, "Yo, I want to set up a similar space in that, in the spirit of liberal arts, uh, elsewhere in Egypt or elsewhere in the world." Like you know, Francisco had wanted to do in in Quito, and I was able to go and support him uh, in setting something up. So learning about what it takes to till the soil and um, carve out a space so that it would eventually. Um, you know invite and accommodate mixed groups because i think that's really the the social inclusiveness for lack of a better term is really the critical piece like it is what makes this form of liberal arts education from below different from a you know like u.s version uh, of liberal arts education which is a very exclusive and yeah it's a very prestigious place though so like enabling access how do you do that effectively right how do you mm, choose make a deliberate choice about where to position such an intervention where to you know conduct it um, so i'm i'm learning that uh, in my like new role as consultant or, or just friend because i don't really consider but it's it's interesting because more recently i'm i'm, I'm receiving you know requests from people in Bombay and Srinagar and Kashmir it's like hey we want to set up something you know similar to c can you come out and, and, and support us people in South Africa and, and elsewhere in Brazil actually oh, yeah, I need to tell you at some point about that I um so anyways so just trying to see how, how can you give better advice and also always being very careful about which which context you're you're dealing with and and the the ripeness also. This, that's that's an interesting insight that I mm, developed in, in in Quito. Now so the moment I the day I arrived, you know the, something sparked and just blew up, and so it was a twelve day uprising. Was like, obviously, I had experience with uprisings, but uh, it was a very different kind of you know. It was pushing back on an, an, a structural adjustment program by the IMF. Like how do you deal with that, and what does that mean now in terms of the, the approach to, um, and the invitation to whatever community is finding itself interested in that critical moment. Do you engage these questions kind of like hands on, um, what's the word? um, uh, head, head on and try and sort of like, look at the immediacy kind of of the moment, or do you try to zoom out and kind of ask for like bit bigger questions about an intellectual project of modernity, coloniality, that is coming to an end, practices of hospicing giving birth to something new you ask these kind of like larger more intellectual historical questions um and also kind of sort of the the almost the like the focusing like almost like you would focus a lens uh so 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 curricular design considering you know the critical challenges like to you know how authoritarian is the regime you're dealing with you know when i was doing this in egypt i had to really think hard how do you translate this offering into a language that would not alarm state security and come after me the next day, but at the same time, like get through to the people who, who are asking these questions, you know, behind closed doors and, and their inner circle of friends. Um, Now, you know, like I've been thinking a lot about this when, in, in terms of if people, if I were to kind of manage to find some time to go to India, do this now, you know, with this rise of the, the Citizenship Act and, like, coming through as a, uh, you know, with a Muslim-sounding name, coming from Egypt kind of to 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 exchange with some critical scholars, Indian scholars, especially if I were to do this in Kashmir. Like, how do you do this um, in a smart way, ultimately, you know? Like, when... Uh, when dealing with like rising authoritarianism or fascism, you know, like blatant fascism at, at this point in the Indian context. Um, so this is kind of as a, as a founder and people, and someone who wants to support the foundation uh, of similar spaces elsewhere uh, across the global South. But you know, if somebody wants to do it in the global North, I'm not <laughs> disinclined. And then I guess the last thing I would say, um, yeah, I guess if I'm thinking about all of this. Um, So the first piece is kind of like thinking more about my pedagogical practice. The second thing that I just talked about is more about the operations and how to advise and consult with setting something up. But then as a thinking about sort of the larger trend, so what we started off with in terms of decolonial pedagogies and stuff, and and, and really kind of developing a, a philosophy of education that could guide us or that could at least kind of raise some of the questions that I think we should be asking. And and so, so, the pigeon tower, for instance, like I'm not sure what to do with that now. Should that come in installation? Should I just go, you know, actually build pigeon towers? And I, like, because it's it's a metaphor. Let me perhaps um, say very briefly what this is about. Um, but so, any, you know, I mean, one of the things I shared with you was this written piece or just compilation um, collection of essays that looked at what I call the anchoring principles of this this image or a metaphor, the metaphor of the Pigeon Tower, which kind of came up half jokingly, but also half in response of that, you know, the crisis of the Ivory Tower. Because the crisis of, you know, the neoliberal university is also one of the Ivory Towers that disconnects with with everyday life, um, and also the, the fragmentation within, and, and that we talked about earlier, uh, um, the disciplinary, but also between admin and faculty and students. Um, and I think so with the Pigeon Tower, like, I guess I wanted to get people to first of all smile uh, because, you know, it's, it's probably it's better to be smiling as we move forward um, and, and kind of see that there's always something very, something humorous going on, always. <laughs> so, so with the Pigeon Tower and the anecdote that goes with it, you know, well, what is a Pigeon Tower? And, and then I realized that outside of North Africa, kind of West Asia, people are not aware what Pigeon Towers are when I spoke in the U.S., they're like, what are, you, what are pigeon towers? Like, well, you know, they're like, you know, uh, a piece of architecture with, with the holes and like beams sticking out for like pigeons to, to have shelter and uh, spend a good time together uh, and kind of rest. It's a resting place, it's a, <laughs> it's a, you know, like a place of, of sharing a meal and, and, and so on. And also it's a place that, that, that harvests the droppings, um, some of them anyway, and the, the rest kind of lands on people's heads. As we all know, and that obviously is is, is a blessing, and obviously humans, uh, you know, need need some blessing at this point. So so there is this anecdote that went with it, that then I guess is not more than anecdotal evidence for, for, for something that, that could be or that you know could potentially be wiser, but uh, there's no guarantee, as Vanessa would say. And so I want to explore that a little bit, but and also you know like with the piece on like thinking with pigeons. Uh, about liberal arts education in Cairo and beyond is like, what What? What? what could we learn um, from from looking at the way pigeons, pigeon flocks uh, self-organize and have this clock shift, clock shift mechanism that I talked about where there was no designated leader. And if somebody kind of like somebody's ego inflates, the others would kind of stir, steer away. And so there's this built-in mechanism of, uh, you know, you're acting up. Do do you, you know, like find your way to vent and then come and come and join us, and then this 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 inevitably happens, right? And the other piece, I guess, that I want to draw attention to through that image and kind of proposing this, I mean, it's not a philosophy of education anyway, but it's it's an anecdote of education, let's say, um, is the, the 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 build the building material, right? So, philosophy, um pigeon towers being made of mud brick rather than steel and glass, which is what we're seeing in places like NYU and uh, I mean, just some of the places I've visited over the years, American University in Cairo, but also kind of new and upcoming liberal arts colleges in outside of Delhi, Ashoka, you've probably heard of Ashoka and, and other places, just like straight up, um, you know, like colonial aesthetics, I, I, for, to me anyway, you know, just extractivism written all over it. The, the, the shininess, the glossiness of, 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 and the smoothness of, you know, high-tech um, architecture, which I, no, I mean, you know, like, I, I think it, we need to recognize also that in, in the case of, of, of Silas, where we had to kind of go underground at some point because state security was after and I'm just saying this in a very nonchalant, you know, in a very kind of casual way, it was very scary, you <laughs> know, like freaking out. So, like, we had to disappear. We had to disappear overnight, stay underground for a few months as a community, and then pop up somewhere else, and then, and then kind of like pack up again and move somewhere else. So, we had to kind of set up camp somewhere and then move on. So, there, there is definitely something to nomadic theory. There is something to this notion of itinerant curricula and, and whatnot. And I think with the, build, the, so the, the building material, and, um, and the in, as, as a piece of infrastructure, we really need to think, you know, critically about infrastructure. Um, but anyways, I don't want to go on too long about this, but about the pigeon tower is the, the height of it, right? Which I talk about very briefly, which is kind of bringing into conversation, liberal arts education and the realm of ideas with what's going on. Uh, in the immediate surrounding and bringing that into, you know, situating the arts of education. That's also kind of the uh,
0: level. I love, I love that. I mean, it's a very powerful, evocative image, the pigeon tower and also the, the, the produce, if you like, of back into the human realm being the guano that's collected to yeah. <laughs> <themselves>. <laughs> the production of ideas and, and, Inquiry and so forth, feeding back into the soil. Sometimes, you know, it's so fertile. Yeah. Well, one one image comes to mind too. That, that there's another episode in a series where there's a conversation with Narcissus Blood, the Blackfoot elder, and his image of the university. He talked about not the ivory tower, but the fort. So the fort yeah. that set up by you know the the colonists in North America to keep the natives out. So his idea of, of the university as a fort designed to keep native knowledge, local knowledge out and to preserve this kind of, you know, the, yes. the, the purity of Euro-American forms of knowledge and knowing and inquiry, which I think is, is you know, is also part of what you're talking about in this decolonial moment that we're at in terms of questioning some of these. Places. You know, you could,
1: as, as, you know, as an alternative to the fort or the fortress, you could even push further than I have been, with the pigeon tower still being made from a a, a substance that kind of mm, takes on a particular shape and at least can endure in that shape for, for some time. But Munir, we had a conversation uh, in in Jordan uh, a few months back. He was he was pushing back. He said, "Why not tents? You know, we're 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 Arabs. We you know we're we're Bedouins. Uh, <laughs> our, our ancestors are Bedouins, and they." are doing fine in in, in tents. so um, so i mean i think yeah you know, i think i think ultimately that's an somebody who who attends it in ecoversity and someone who has to learn obviously how to to set up these shelters um, and be able to to move on also so to to be a nomad in 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 a world that is like rapidly uh, being taken and
0: uh, you you mentioned that the ecoversity now. Jonah, you know, I mean, I have that's in a way one last question, unless you have other things to add. I was gonna ask just about the ecoversity, and then I was gonna ask you something about, about tea as a practice.
1: Let me start perhaps with the the, the latter bit. Um so I guess like one thing that I've come around to when I you know decided to organize and and, and co-host the, the the first regional gathering in Uganda, the Africa regional gathering, was in my introductory remarks to the people who had, uh, you know, uh, received the the invitation either from me directly or through some other person, um, was to obviously emphasize that um, there's an ecological crisis that everyone is, or, I you mean, know, people are becoming increasingly more aware of. Then there's the second notion or meaning ascribed and often sort of recalled by um, by Kelly, um, the notion of like coming home or, or returning, um, but which is also to me another way of saying a challenging Eurocentrism, right? Um, which is so returning home not just in in the sense of literally returning to ancestral lands, uh, or but it's also remembering, uh, reclaiming. Um, local knowledge systems, as the language suggests. uh, Um, But then the the third meaning somehow ironically came about at the global gathering in Mexico when Er Hermes from Sao Paulo uh, said that when he first heard heard the notion eco, he thought of an echo and the echo uh, of the gunshots in his favela that he works in, in Sao Paulo. And I think there's the, he, he that just working with you know that prefix and, and the sound echo as echo is is really uh telling because there's a, a number of us in the alliance and I think this is also how i how I see myself contributing uh, to the alliance um, working in in ways through urban ecology and and having to deal with a lot of um, I mean, not so much in, in the Egyptian context with gun violence, but otherwise in the Latin American urban context, lots of gun violence um, and otherwise kind of security issues. I guess in the Egyptian context, the main thing would be like mobility issues and congestion and, and air pollution and, and sound or noise pollution and, and all of these issues. But also kind of the now with you know, increasing uh, investment, uh, global capital coming into um, cities uh, who are, you know, actively trying to position themselves on a, on, a, on a map to attract this investment that are like changing overnight. It's just, it's crazy. I'm, I'm in Casablanca right now and it's one of these places that is just, the facade is, is changing like constantly, you know. You, there's, there's no preservation whatsoever of, of of heritage sites uh, or nothing kind of outlives a generation. So there's this, this, this accelerated renewal and upgrading going on. And I think this is becomes like most visible in, uh, in cities. Um, but at the, at the same time in the African context, one of the things that I write about in the bulletin, um, piece is just, you know, urbanization is happening at a really unprecedented, you know, like almost like Chinese rate where masses of people are, you know, of, mm, moving to, 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 to metropolitan areas and just urban sprawl taking over. And all of this is happening without much regulation from the state, right? With all these masses of people remaining in the shadow uh, of, of, of the state. And left at their own devices, which on the one hand brings up some really creative kind of um, so-called entrepreneurial survival skills and their survival skills, right? <laughs> so like there's, there, we shouldn't fetishize that either. Right. But um, there's also a lot of, that's probably not a word in English, but to de or just like a lack of accountability um, on behalf of the state. So I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of, very like mm, pressing uh, needs and, and 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 dynamics playing out uh, at at the city level and within urban ecologies. Um, you know, with regards to displacement and, and and forced removal, with regards to eviction and demolition, uh, the freeing up of spaces, the uh, and every, everything that I just sketched. So I think, anyways. So the last meaning of eco, I think, is, is, is deserves our attention uh, as an alliance. I think it's important to to think about what does urbanization bring with it in terms of challenges that we would need to respond to and incorporate into our pedagogical practice. I guess, like to answer the second bit, uh, one of my uh, practices uh, as an educator is typically I I don't I don't host a group without um, making sure everyone has a cup of tea without a handle and, <laughs> and, and serving them some tea to begin with. And I think to really tune into the space, uh, into themselves, and be in a position to listen to one another uh, and hear what each other, each other has, what, no, what everyone has to say.
0: Um,
1: and I, I, so, you know, there's a lot of talk about slowing down and arriving. Um, and and connecting and listening attentive listening um, and I think all of this remains talk if there is nothing that can translate, no artifact or no, no mediator or convivial tool to use ilij, um, that can facilitate that to me I usually place a teapot um, in, the, in, in the center of the room and have people kind of Come back to it. It's it's not not about any one part, participant, but it's rather about the teapot allowing us to sit around it. So read really, you know this notion of decentering also. It's very much uh, a pedagogical practice of decentering, of slowing down, uh, of listening, and um, and I think that you know what's curious also when you hold a, a, a hot cup of tea you you you're almost you, you have no choice but to to stop um, uh, to to pause um, and and to 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 uh, to relax your muscles also and I think it's incredibly important in terms of gender dynamics in the classroom also when men are you know mansplain <laughs> most of the time anyway and um, with a cup of tea they often kind of sit back and listen uh, and perhaps also give introverts a chance to to speak up so i think it it's a, it's a very uh strategic tool to address silencing uh be it you know gender induced or otherwise personality induced um or oftentimes uh spatially or materially induced when you have a very kind of at many sort of like big universities you know they give you a sense that you're sitting on a pedestal, you know, and that that you're you you're here to be heard, and there's something very like uh, aggrandizing about it. So I think there's there's I think there's something very humbling also in in serving uh, tea. Um, yeah, I, I I could go on for hours.
0: I love that I love that practice of tea. I love that it's a core cool part of your your pedagogy. In, in the work that you do and that I, it, I so often in fact almost always I see you with either a shimaha'ong or a, a, a teapot or something and you're always inviting for conversations with you and I think it's it's a really beautiful way of slowing down and, and grounding as you say and, uh, and being attentive to, to each other and to our bodies and and our what nourishes us as well. I think that's really it's a, a wonderful practice, and I hope listeners can can incorporate that into into their own daily routines or pedagogical routines as well. So, uh, so Karim, was there anything else to add? I mean, this has been a very rich uh, um, and flowing conversation into lots of really interesting and great aspects of the work that you're doing, and. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed hearing more and getting to know more about uh, all this, this work. Yeah, me
1: too. I, I, I thank you for taking the initiative and, uh, to do this podcast series. Um,
0: yes. Thank you. If you want to know more about the work of Karim there are resources available in the dedicated podcast website and episode at ecoversities.org This website also has information about other ecoversities and the work of the Ecoversities Alliance This podcast was produced and edited by Jack Haskell Music included is composed and performed by Knowledge and by Jacob Potters